You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Mystery of the Universe, the Human Being, Image of Creation, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 11. I drew attention yesterday to the fact that what is present in man points to something correspondingly present in the cosmos outside him. And now I would like to give special attention to the relation of our head to a world beyond the earth, a world that lies beyond the world upon which the rest of the human organism is dependent. The head points clearly to the world through which we passed between death and rebirth, its whole organization being so modeled that it forms a distinct echo of our sojourn in the spiritual world. Now, let us look for the corresponding phenomenon in the cosmos. We need only compare the behavior of Saturn, which stands far out in the universe, with that of the Earth to notice a certain difference. Astronomy recognizes this difference by saying that Saturn goes round the Sun in thirty years, while the Earth goes round it in one year. We will not stop now to discuss whether these claims are correct or whether they are one-sided. We will only point to the fact that the observation gained by following Saturn in cosmic space and comparing the rapidity of its progress with that of the Earth brings us to the conclusion that in the astronomical system of Copernicus and Kepler, Saturn needs thirty years and the Earth only one year to go round the Sun. To Jupiter we assign a revolution lasting twelve years. Much shorter is that of Mars. And when we come to the other planets, Venus and Mercury, we find that they have even shorter periods of orbit than the Earth. All these conclusions are obviously well thought out, worked out on the basis of observations made in one way or another. I have pointed out that we only gain a clear insight into these things by comparing what takes place in the far distances of cosmic space with what goes on within the boundary of our skin in our own organism. Reflect for a moment and you will find that what is called the period of the Earth's revolution round the Sun corresponds to something in yourself. In the foregoing lecture, we showed that in order to represent the daily course of our lives, we have to use a certain curving line that turns back upon itself. In a similar way must the curved line corresponding to the yearly motion of the earth be imagined, irrespective of whether we think that the movement of the earth is at the same time a movement round the sun or not. For what have we here? Let us think. We have our own daily cycle of life, which we will consider now, not in its correspondence to the cosmos, but as it presents itself in us, so that we can also include those whose sleeping and waking 
do not correspond with the alternation of day and night, idlers as well as all those who live irregular lives. Let us consider this daily round of man on the basis already established, that is to say, representing it in thought as a line in which the points of sleeping and waking are superimposed, as I have pointed out. There are many reasons, but one will suffice to show that we are bound to superimpose the point of waking over that of falling asleep. Consider the remarkable fact that when we look back over our life, it appears to us as an unbroken stream. We do not feel compelled to regard life in such a way as to say, Today I have lived and have been conscious of my environment from the moment of waking. Before that all was darkness. Before that, again, my falling asleep of yesterday was preceded by living waking experience. Back to the moment of waking. But then darkness again. You do not picture the stream of memory like this. You picture it so that the moment of awaking and the moment of falling asleep really unite in your conscious recollection. That is a plain fact. This fact can be expressed in that the curve representing our daily cycle comes out as a spiral with the point of awaking always crossing the point of falling asleep. If the curve were an ellipse or a circle, then awaking and falling asleep would have to be separate. They could not possibly be superimposed. In this way alone, therefore, can we picture our daily cycle. Now let us try to see exactly what this means for us. Your waking time runs from your awaking to your falling asleep. During that time, you are a physical human being, and you are, moreover, a complete human being, possessing physical body, etheric body, astral body, and ego. Now consider your condition from falling asleep until awaking. Then you have only physical body and etheric body. As physical human being, you are not a human being as such. You have only physical body and etheric body. Strictly speaking, such a thing should not be. Your physical body and etheric body become really an untruth, for a being so composed should be a plant. It is the remainder of the whole human being left behind when the ego and astral body have departed. And only by virtue of the fact that these will return before the physical and etheric bodies can actually reach the plant stage. It is only because of this that you do not die every night. Now let us examine what is left lying on the bed. What happens to it? It suddenly becomes plant-like. Its life is comparable to what takes place on earth from the moment when plants sprout in spring until the autumn, when they die down. This plant nature springs up and puts forth leaf in man, so to say, from falling asleep to awaking. He is then like the earth in summer. And when the ego and astral body return and man awakes, he becomes like the earth in winter so that we may say that the time between awaking and falling asleep is our winter, and that between falling asleep and awaking is our summer. For the year of the cosmos, in so far as the earth is part of it, corresponds with man's day. 
The earth wakes in winter and sleeps in summer. The summer is the earth's sleeping time, the winter its waking time. Outer perception obviously gives a false analogy, presenting summer as the earth's waking time and winter as its time of sleeping. The reverse is the case, for during sleep we resemble blossoming, sprouting plant life, like the earth in summer. When our ego and astral body re-enter our physical and etheric bodies, it is as though the summer sun withdrew from the plant-laden earth and the winter sun began to work. Thus the whole year is, at different times, represented in any one part of the earth's surface. The case of the earth is different from that of an individual human being, but only apparently so. In whichever part of the earth we may dwell, a year's course corresponds to the daily course of an individual human being. The course of a year in the cosmos corresponds to a person's day. Thus we have the direct fact that when we look up to the cosmos we have to say a year, that is for the cosmos sleeping and waking. And if our earth is the head of the cosmos, it expresses the waking of the cosmos in winter and its sleeping in summer. If we now consider the cosmos, which as we see manifests waking and sleeping, for the plant covering of the earth is an outcome of cosmic working, we shall find that we have to think of it as a great organism. We must think of what takes place in its constituent parts as organically integrated into the whole cosmos. Just as what takes place in one of our own organs is integrated into our organism. And here we come to the significance of what astronomy expresses as the difference between the shorter periods of Venus's and Mercury's revolutions in comparison with the longer periods of Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. When we consider the so-called outer planets, Saturn, Jupiter and Mars, then Sun, Mercury, Venus and Earth we find this apparently long period of revolution in the case of the outer planets stretching beyond a year, thus beyond mere waking time. Let us consider Saturn with its thirty-year orbit of the Sun. How can we express these apparent thirty years in the language of the cosmos, whose year is its daily cycle? If a year is the daily cycle of the cosmos, then the apparent period of Saturn's revolution is approximately thirty days, a cosmic month, a cosmic four weeks. Thus we may say that if we regard Saturn as the outermost planet, the other two, Uranus and Neptune, regarded today as of equal significance with Saturn, are really additions from without, then we must say that Saturn bounds our cosmos, and in its apparent slowness, in its limping behind the earth, we behold the four-weekly or monthly cycle of the cosmos compared to the life it displays in the course of our year, which for the cosmos is like a falling asleep and awaking. From this it may be seen that Saturn, if its apparent path is regarded as the outermost limit of our planetary system, is inwardly related to the latter in a different way from, let us say, Mercury. 
Mercury, needing less than 100 days for its apparent revolution, moves quickly, is inwardly active, has a certain celerity, whereas Saturn moves slowly. To what exactly does this correspond? In the movement of Saturn, you have something comparatively slow, in that of Mercury, something that is very much quicker, an inner activity of the cosmic organism, something that stirs the cosmos inwardly. It is as if you had, let us say, a kind of living mucilaginous organism, itself revolving but having also within it an organ which is revolving more quickly. Mercury separates itself from the movement of the whole by its quicker revolution. It is, as it were, an enclosed member. So too is the movement of Venus. Here we have something analogous to the relation of our head to the rest of our organism. The head separates itself off from the movements of the rest of the organism. Venus and Mercury emancipate themselves from the movement set by Saturn. They go their own way. They vibrate within the whole system. What does this signify? They have something extra as compared with the whole system. Their more rapid movement shows this. What corresponds in our head to this extra aspect? Our head has something extra, namely its orientation to the supersensible world. But our head is at rest in our organism, just as we are at rest in a coach or a railway carriage while it is moving. Venus and Mercury act differently. They do the exact opposite as regards their emancipation. Whereas the head is quiescent, as we are when we sit still in a railway carriage, Venus and Mercury emancipate themselves from the whole planetary system in the opposite way. It is as though we, sitting in the railway carriage, were impelled by something to move all the time much faster than the train itself. This is due to the fact that Venus and Mercury, with their much quicker apparent movement, are related not to space alone but to that to which our head is also related. Only these relations take opposite courses. Our head being brought to rest, Venus and Mercury, on the other hand, becoming more active. They are the two planets through which our planetary system has a relation to the supersensible world. They incorporate our planetary system into the cosmos in a different way than do Jupiter and Saturn. Our planetary system is spiritualized through Venus and Mercury, more intimately adapted to the spiritual powers than happens through Jupiter and Saturn. Things that are real often appear quite differently when studied according to true reality instead of according to generally received opinion. Just as when we judge externally we call winter the sleeping time of the earth and summer its waking time, whereas the reverse is true. In the same way, judging externally, Saturn and Jupiter might be regarded as more spiritual than Venus and Mercury. This is not the case, for Venus and Mercury stand in more intimate relation to something underlying the whole cosmos than do Jupiter and Saturn. Thus we may say that in Venus and Mercury we have something which places us outwardly as a member of the planetary system, in relation to a supersensible world. 
Here, while we live on Earth, we are brought into connection with the supersensible world through Venus and Mercury. We might say, when we are incorporated by birth into the physical world, we are carried into it by Saturn and Jupiter. While we live from birth to death, Venus and Mercury work within us and prepare us to carry our supersensible part back again through death into the supersensible world. In fact, Mercury and Venus have just as much share in our immortality after death as Jupiter and Saturn have in our death life before death. It is really so if we it is really so we have to see something in the cosmos which corresponds to the relation between the comparatively more spiritual organism of the head and the rest of the human organization. Now, let us suppose that Saturn also pursues its movement in a similar curve, lemniscate. Only, of course, its path is different through cosmic space, having a movement thirty times less rapid than the Earth. If we picture these two curves, we must realize that each planetary body which follows such a path, lemniscate, is obviously moved in this path by forces, but each one by forces of a different kind. Then we come to an idea which is extremely important and which, if taken rightly, will probably at once strike you as true. If it does not, it is only because, under the influence of the materialism of the last centuries, people are not accustomed to connect such things with the facts of the universe. To to the modern materialistic view of the cosmos, Saturn is observed merely as a body moving about in cosmic space and the same with the other planets. This is not the case, for if we take Saturn, the outermost planet of our universe, we must represent it as the leader of our planetary system in cosmic space. Saturn directs our system in space, embodying that outermost force which draws us round in the lemniscate in cosmic space. Saturn is simultaneously both the driver and the horse, the force at the outermost periphery of our solar system. If Saturn worked alone, we should continually move solely in a lemniscate. But there are other forces in our planetary system which show a more intimate mediation with the spiritual world, the forces that we find in Mercury and Venus. Through these forces, our path is continually raised. Thus, when we look upon the path from above, we have the lemniscate. But when we look at it sideways, we obtain lines which are continually rising upward. There is a progression. This progression corresponds in man to the fact that during sleep what we have taken into us, though it may not pass over at once into consciousness, is worked upon and deepened. During sleep we work upon it. It is principally during sleep that we work on what we have absorbed through our life and education. During sleep, Mercury and Venus communicate that to us. They are our most important night planets, as Jupiter and Saturn are our most important day planets. Hence ancient, instinctive, atavistic wisdom was right in connecting Jupiter and Saturn with the formation of the human head, Mercury and Venus with the formation of the human trunk with the rest of the organism.
These things arose from an intimate knowledge of the connection between man and the universe. Now, I will ask you carefully to consider the following. It is, first of all, necessary to gain inner understanding of the Earth's movement. We must recognize the influence upon it of Venus and Mercury forces, which bear the lemniscate further, so that it progresses and its axis itself becomes a lemniscate. Thus for the Earth we have an extremely complicated movement. And now I come to what I wish to point out. Suppose we have to draw this movement. Astronomy tries to do so. Astronomy wants to have a planetary system. It wants to draw the solar system and explain it by calculation. Planets such as Venus and Mercury, however, have relation to the extraspatial, the supersensible, the spiritual, to that which does not originally belong in space, but has, as it were, come into it. Thus, if you have the paths of Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, and in the same space also draw in the paths of Mercury and Venus, you will get at most a projection of the Mercury or of the Venus orbit, but in no sense the orbits themselves. If we employ three-dimensional space to sketch in the orbits of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars, we come at most to a boundary where we get something like a path of the sun. But if we wish to draw the others, we can no longer do so in three-dimensional space. We can only obtain shadow pictures of these other movements in it. We cannot draw the path of Venus and that of Saturn in the same three-dimensional space. From this we see that all delineations of the solar system, where the same kind of space is used for Saturn as for Venus, are only approximate. They do not suffice for a solar system. Such drawings are as little possible as it would be to explain the whole being of man according to purely natural forces only. This shows why no depiction of the solar system is adequate. A non-astronomer such as Johannes Schlaff was easily able to prove to quite well-established astronomers the impossibility of their solar system by very simple facts, pointing out that if the sun and the earth are so related that the latter revolves round the former, the sun spots could not show themselves as they do, the earth being at various times in different positions relative to the sun, now behind it, now in front, now coming round again. That, however, is not the case at all. No drawing of our solar system that is inscribed into one space of the ordinary three dimensions will be right. We must understand this. Just as to understand man as a whole, we must pass from physical to supersensible forces, so in the same way, to understand the solar system, we must pass from three dimensions into other dimensions. That is to say, we cannot describe the ordinary solar system in terms of three-dimensional space alone. Planetary, in quotes, globes and so forth, we have to look at as follows. If here we have Saturn on the globe and there Mercury, then it is not the true Mercury, but its shadow only, its projection. These are things that spiritual science must bring to light. They have quite faded from people's knowledge. 
About six or seven centuries before the Christian era, ancient primordial wisdom began gradually to disappear until replaced by philosophy from the middle of the 15th century. But people such as Pythagoras, for instance, still knew so much of the ancient wisdom that they could say, we dwell on the earth, we belong through the earth to a cosmic system to which Jupiter and Saturn also belong. But if we remain in these three dimensions, then we shall not belong in the same way to Venus and Mercury. We cannot belong to the two latter directly, as we do to Jupiter and Saturn. But if our Earth is in one kind of space with Saturn and Jupiter, there must be a counter-Earth which is in another space with Venus and Mercury. Hence ancient astronomers spoke of the Earth and the counter-Earth. Of course, the modern materialist would say, "Uh, counter-Earth, I see nothing of that. He is like a person who weighs another person, having first charged the other to think about nothing, and weighs him again when he has charged him to think a specially clever thought, and then says, I have weighed him, but I have not found the weight of his thought. Materialism rejects what has no weight or cannot be seen. Remarkable things, however, shine out of atavistic, primeval wisdom to which we can return through the inner vision of spiritual science. It is of urgent necessity that we should work our way through now to what is entirely new, which, however, was once known of long ago. For in our time it needs to be acquired in full consciousness. Unless we do this, we shall lose the very possibility of thinking. I called attention yesterday to the fact that a certain kind of thinking about social issues leads people to strive for monometallism, for the sake of free trade, and yet a protective tariff comes. No true social order will arise out of what is being striven for on the foundation of thinking people. On the foundation of thinking people possess today. Let me read that again. No true social order will arise out of what is being striven for on the foundation of thinking people possess today. A true social order can only come about through thinking trained in a science which does not draw a planisphere showing Saturn and Venus in the same space. For the view of the universe which we are giving here does not merely mean that we hold something up before us but also that, in a sense, we learn to think. What exactly does this mean? Remember what I have said. When our bodily organization is remodeled in the next incarnation, it not only goes through a change, but is turned inside out. As a glove is turned from a left hand to a right hand glove by turning it inside out, so too what is now inside, liver, heart, kidneys, becomes the outer sense organs, eye, ear, and so on. It is all turned inside out. This corresponds to another turning inside out, Saturn on the one hand and wholly outside its space, Venus and Mercury, a reversal within itself. If we do not observe this, what happens? It is the same as failing to observe the turning inside out in the case of the human head. When we do not observe the universe according to this law of reversal, 
we do something very peculiar. We do not think with our head at all. And this is something to which the fifth post-Atlantean epoch is tending, insofar as it is descending and not seeking to ascend again by means of spiritual science. Man would like to rest his head free and think only with the rest of the organism. That mode of thought is abstract. He wants to set the head free. He has no desire to lay claim to what has resulted from foregoing incarnations. He wants to reckon only with the present one. People do not only wish to deny successive earth lives in theory. They carry their head, as it were, with outer dignity, because it sits like a lord over the rest of the organism, like a man riding in a carriage. But they do not take that rider in the carriage seriously. They carry him about with them, but make no claim upon his innate capacities. They make no practical use of their repeated earth lives. This tendency has been developing, more or less, since the beginning of the fifth post-Atlantean epoch, and we can only oppose it by taking up spiritual science. One might even define spiritual science as something that induces us to take our head seriously once more. From one point of view, the essential aspect of spiritual science is really that it takes the human head seriously not merely regarding it as an additional appendage to the rest of the organism. Europe especially, as it so rapidly approaches barbarism, would like to get rid of the head. Spiritual science must disturb this sleep. It must urge human beings to use their heads. This can only be done by taking the belief in repeated earth lives seriously. One cannot talk of spiritual science in the way that is usually done if one takes it seriously. One must say, what is? And to what is belongs something which appears as sheer madness. The fact that people disown their heads. They would rather not believe this. They prefer to regard truth as madness. This has always been so. Things in human evolution come about in such a way that people are taken unawares by the new, and so they must of course be shocked and astonished by this emphasis on the necessity for using the head. Lenin and Trotsky's message amounts to saying, do not use your head, just use the rest of your organism. The rest of the organism is a vehicle of the instincts. People are to be led by instincts alone, and they do this too. They carry it into their practice. It is their practice that nothing arises from the human head. Really, It is their practice that nothing that arises from the human head should enter modern Marxist theories. These things are very serious. How serious they are has to be emphasized again and again. The end of Lecture 11